I wanted to take a moment to say thanks for listening to this podcast. Your support makes it possible for the series to exist. By subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show, you'll help others find it too. So please take a minute to rate and review an absurd result. And thanks again. As a reminder, this series does contain details of a sexual assault and also adult language. Hey, it's Jewel with your last recap, and you pretty much know it all now. You know the man identified by DNA as being in the bedroom when an eight-year-old survived a brutal rape can never be prosecuted for that crime. You hung out with me while we talked about laws and court cases, going over some pretty complicated terrain. Where we ended up in a legal sense, all of that matters beyond this case. That's important, and we're going to talk about that. But I want to start off in a more personal way with Linda Glantz and Jim Bromgard. I know you know, but in case you're starting with the last episode for some reason, Linda is the childhood rape survivor and Jim's the man who went to prison but didn't rape her. Linda says it took years for her to hit send on what came next. I reached out to him and just said, hey, just so you know, I hope you're doing well. I've only good thoughts towards you. If you don't want to be in touch, I understand. And I did that through Facebook Messenger, and he contacted me back and um, said we were good. Oh, she's pretty cool. She's pretty easy to talk to. I mean, I never ever talked to her before until last fall. So I've never ever, ever talked to her. She was eight years old last time I saw her. So, <laughs> so it's been a while. It's episode seven of An Absurd Result, Where We Are Now. I'm Jewel Banville, and where these two are now is still in touch. After that first contact, they continued to message each other. And we just started going back and forth and kind of, what are you, what are you up to in your life? Um, last summer, he texted and said him and his family would be driving through on their way to Billings, and he wanted to meet, and if that was okay. And we actually met at Dairy Queen, <laughs> sat outside, had ice cream, met his children, met his wife. Jim's wife is Kathy, but Jim calls her Cat. They met in a bar in Kalispell and got married on the 4th of July. Now they have two kids, Rayanne and Miles. The four of them were driving to visit Jim's mom in Billings when they stopped in Livingston to meet Linda for the first time. Here's Kat. I, I mean, I really enjoy talking to her. She's she's a really good person. She's got a big heart and she's strong and you know, I was I was really emotional when the two of them met last year, and they were kind of emotional. I gave them some time, some time because our kids were like running and jumping and climbing, and they were just being kids. And right. so I took them and we went for a walk and let the two of them have some time. I they needed it. Yeah, but it was pretty. It was pretty cool. Linda and Jim didn't become best friends, but they had a real connection. They're both victims, and they recognize that in each other. And also, they're not defined by what was taken from them when they were both essentially kids. But it crops up from time to time, like it did in the spring of 2020. That's when the Innocence Project reached out to Jim to see if he'd want to be part of this oral history project featuring exonerees. It's a collaboration with StoryCorps, which you might know from stories that air sometimes on NPR. With this project, exonerees could pick the person they wanted to interview them. It could be a spouse or a parent or one of their kids. Jim picked Linda, and Linda said yes. This is part of that conversation. 
And I remember my mom first told me that the Innocence Project was looking into the case. I was floored. I felt like I had supported something so horrible. I know I was eight, but I felt like I had too big of a hand in it to give myself a break. When you were released from prison, I think I was 22, 23. When I first got out, I cried. It was overwhelming. And then the time just flew by. After you got exonerated, I was like, I need to find a way to reach out to him. And then as more years passed, I was like, well, it would just be weird now. <laughs> and then January 2015, I heard about someone who's been proven by DNA to be the person who raped me. I knew I wanted to talk about it this time around. We got in touch. I reached out to see if you and I talking was something that you would be interested in. I was a little bit nervous. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but you answered the same day. We started texting. And we decided, why not have lunch? Yeah, so we spent about an hour and a half talking last summer. Yep. And it felt good. Were you shocked when you got my message? Or was it something you thought would inevitably happen? I was glad. I hoped it would happen eventually, but I wasn't going to push. I learned patience in prison. We got a link. We don't really know each other that well, but we need to get to know each other. I feel like we're both victims in this. Yeah. You know, our stories have been so close to each other. I think part of it was a little bit selfish, and I needed to know that you didn't blame me for what you went through. That's something that I feel like I needed. That's part of why I reached out. I had a lot, I have a lot of guilt, and it's hard to shake it. I just want to make sure that you know that it wasn't your fault. <sighs> this has definitely been a good experience. Thank you very much for doing the interview. I think this was good for both of us. Yeah. The recording happened at the University of Montana's law school with people who flew in from New York to make it happen. Afterward, Linda told me Jim asked her a question I think I was scared to. But now I know better. Linda's come to a place where she'll probably answer any question anyone has. She's just not afraid. He asked me if everything I've been through was the reason um, I decided not to have any kids, which is a question I've gotten before from a few people. Um, you know, and that's my answer to that one is always... Who knows? Because who knows how differently I would have turned out if this hadn't happened when I was eight years old. Um, I have no idea what trajectory trajectory my life was taking. Um, and how do you know at eight years old? Um, but also, you know, I always say I was in Yellowstone from the age of 19 to 35. And even though I met Patty there, there's no way to have kids there. It just was never on our minds. And when we did talk about it, we were like, no, we don't want kids. And we knew if we changed our minds, we'd have to have a conversation. But... Neither of us ever changed our minds. So, so. When you came out of the, um, I don't know, the recording session, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was more of a conversation than an interview, sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, what you immediately said, even though it wasn't recording, was, you know, it was good. Yeah. It ended in a positive way. <laughs> so why do you feel that way? Um, I feel that, I, like, I think that Jimmy even wanted me to do this was um, says a lot about him. Um, I asked him why he would ask me to do this, and he said that you're just the first person I thought of. He goes, I thought of my wife first, but she's already heard all my stories. So, um, but just to be able to sit there and in a really unedited way, just ask him all the questions that I kind of been curious about. Um, 
definitely had some tearful moments. Uh, it's really emotional. At one point, I think both of us were sitting there talking, and even though our voices weren't cracking or anything, we both had tears just coming out of our eyes just on their own. So, you know, and after you have a, an emotional conversation with somebody who you feel like even though the same thing didn't happen to you, that you're both kind of running along the same parallel line, um, I think just not only having that conversation but being very fully aware that it's a conversation that other people could hear, I think it's important and just felt like positive. Yeah. This might be a good time to take a pause on Linda and focus on Jim to let you know what else happened with him in his post-exoneration life. You might remember that he decided to sue in civil court. Eventually, the state settled with Jim for, are you ready? $3.5 million. It set a record as the largest amount the state had ever paid out for a civil rights violation. Jim paid his lawyers a good chunk of it, of course, and then he made up in some ways for losing his 20s in prison. He bought stuff that made him happy. A pontoon boat, a house in the flathead he later sold at a loss. He tells a story about a race car, a 69 Dodge Coronet convertible, candy apple green. And the reason I bought it is because the guy was an asshole. We went in there, we were looking around, this is right after I got my money, so I mean, I had like 900 grand in a bank account. And, uh, Really, there's a Cornet RT convertible. It was a pretty nice car. Well, he's like, I guess it was his car, I guess. So, oh, you can't afford that. It's like, okay. So he's a douchebag. So we were looking, and it was between a, there was a 68 GTO and the 69 Cornet, and a, oh, I don't remember what the other one was. And uh, so I went to look at the, it had, you had to pull the pins and take the hood off to see the engine in the, in the, in the Cornet. So I said, ask for assistance. So I said, can I look at the engine? He says, yeah, I'll be right there. And he just stood up there. He wasn't doing the damn thing. I'm like, okay, douchebag. So I looked at the price tag, went to the bank, took out 22 to the grand, came back through and kind of said, deliver my car tomorrow, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, just to do it. It's like. He freely admits he blew a lot of money. Everything I got bought, I probably sold for about a third of what I paid for it. It was just stuff, though. But the only thing I really missed was the Harley. He did listen to his lawyers and put some money in a trust, and that'll pay most of his bills, probably for the rest of his life. But he's no longer flush. Cat works at a convenience store. Jim is home when his kids are. I was there when Ray Ann, they call her Ray Ray, came home on the bus, and her parents were checking on her after a fall on the trampoline. She has Down syndrome. Her speech can be tough to understand, but it's clear that her dad gets her. Hey, how's your foot feeling? You. It's still really, really swollen. Don't yep. be doing we'll jumps some, like we'll that on the trampoline anymore, okay? Okay. Okay. Keep your both feet on the <laughs> ground, please. How are you, baby? No, boys. Yeah, she's always been daddy's girl. <laughs> you poopy. You poopy. Okay. I'm back. Yeah, I think I'm back. I love the artwork around here. Oh, she's a big here. As for Linda, she's still in Livingston with her husband, Patty, and their two cats, Sam and Elliot. Get it? She now commutes to a hospital job in Bozeman. Patty works for a luxury resort in Paradise Valley, about halfway between Livingston and Yellowstone Park, which you might remember is where the two of them met. Linda has a lot of friends and her family, of course. She would say it's a good life. 
She tries not to dwell on the fact that Ronald Tipton lives about an hour away and will never be prosecuted. She tries not to think about it, but you know what? Sometimes she does. Yeah, I do. I think about it in terms of, you know, definitely having some obvious resentment and anger over the fact that his life has gone on pretty unchanged. And I feel like everything changed for me throughout this process. And, you know, I always... I have a problem saying that, like, I'm angry about this whole situation because I never wanted to be someone who I just felt like if I let myself get angry about all of this, that I would never not feel angry. I think I'm realizing through all of this that, like, it's okay to be fucking pissed off. And it's okay to hate him. And it's okay to be happy that he has a sad, awful life. I don't know if it is, but that's my perception of it. And it's okay to be happy about that, you know? Because he's fucked up my life for 34 years. Obviously, my life is good, but you know what I mean. There's... So... I used to talk to people about this sometimes, and they're like, you don't really seem angry. It's like, I don't want there to be angry about. I can't change anything. But it is in there. Yeah. But this is how anger comes out in me. This. And I can't be this all the time. So. So. What she wants is for what she went through to mean something. She wants you to sit with and think hard on that wonky phrase, statutes of limitation. She wants you to know that it poses real problems for real people, people like her. She thinks these statutes are mostly bullshit. That's the reason she answers every single question I've had since we met more than five years ago. It's why she sits for hours with me, sticking a microphone in her face, even during COVID lockdowns. It's why, on my last visit, she loaned me her canvas tote bag from the Valley of the Flowers project. That bag is where she stashes every document and news clipping related to her case. And it's why she encouraged me to talk to everyone in her family, even the dad she herself hasn't spoken to in years. She absolutely knows there's no justice for her, and she knows that's not good enough. Like, what if somebody is assaulted on this day, and then two days later somebody else is assaulted, and that middle day is the end of the statute of limitations? Why does one victim deserve justice and the victim from a few days later doesn't. And it's as simple as that, but I know that's not how the law sees it. It's not how the law sees it for her. We know that. But the laws are changing for other people. In 2019, after years of changing and expanding the law, Montana straight up eliminated its statute of limitation for sex crimes against children. No DNA required. It's just poof. The change happened after a man hired by a school district to help train its male athletes admitted he abused them. It all came to light, of course, after the criminal statute of limitation expired. The trainer's daughter went to Helena and told the legislature to change this law so that people like her dad would be punished in the future. And the legislature did change it, and the governor at the time, Steve Bullock, he signed it. So this new law in Montana, it's bittersweet for Linda who's moved on in a way. But there are people who think this kind of law, 
That's the ultimate goal for every state. That's the goal for Marcy Hamilton. She's the founder and CEO of Child USA, a think tank focused on policies affecting child victims. And she's worked directly on this case. She's the lead author on a brief supporting Montana's petition to the U.S. Supreme Court. She did that because for her, someone who's having the statute of limitation fight over and over, the only real answer is to treat sexual assault like we do murder. Don't put a clock on it. Go to court. Present the evidence. And frankly, the reasoning behind it is irrefutable. There is no other way for us to have the state tell the victims it's not their fault uh, and to protect today's children from perpetrators that have been living under the cloak of the shortened statute of limitations. This is, this is it. It works. It's a matter of public policy. Uh, you know, statutes of limitations are just deadlines. They're arbitrary. Um, they're at that the whim of the legislature. Her brief supporting Montana's petition to the Supreme Court represented six national organizations focused on child victims. In a separate brief, attorneys general from 18 other states also signed on to Montana's petition. All of them see Stogner versus California, the precedent in this case, as a major hurdle to prosecuting cold case sexual assault and child abuse. As you know from the last episode, the Stogner ruling was basically the end of the line for Linda. It equated charging Ron Tipton with a violation of the ex post facto clause of the U.S. Constitution. Stogner was a 5-4 decision. It was closely decided, and our hope was that if, in fact, DNA is involved and you have the DNA, that the case could make it up to the United States Supreme Court and that they would recognize an exception to the Stogner rule so that, uh, okay, uh, you can't just broadly and blindly revive criminal statute of limitations. I understand that. But if DNA proves the case, then why not then? Why not permit revival when there is DNA in hand? So our hope was that this would be a first step into starting to educate the, high, the appellate courts in the United States Supreme Court in the need to narrow Stogner. Uh, and I was disappointed when we didn't get that far. But honestly, uh, to get the United States Supreme Court to pay attention to an issue, you need to have been pressing that issue for 10, 15 years. It needs to appear in multiple cases. It needs to get on their radar. And so uh, it was a first stepping stone. Most of her efforts are in individual state houses to end or stretch out the statutes of limitation. And that part is gaining traction. In 2003, that's when the Boston Globe started a series that eventually lit up the global scandal involving abusive Catholic priests and, by extension, pointed to some of the problems with statutes of limitation. So since 2003, more than 30 states have amended or eliminated their deadlines on sexual assault of children. And more than half the states now have what Montana passed in 2007, the DNA exception that does away with the deadlines if you have biological proof. And so this year, we have had passage of windows in states 
that I would have predicted we would be working on 10 years from now. We now have a window in both Arkansas and Louisiana. We have a window that's uh, in Colorado. These are states that have been extremely difficult for the victims. But there's still a problem. And that also has to do with what advocates might call progress in a way. I'm talking about the huge national campaign to find and test old rape kits for DNA. The former general counsel for Montana, Dale Schoengert, alluded to it in the last episode. That you've got states that are processing rape kits. Right, the rape kits. There's a growing movement to find those and get them tested, and it has a title, End the Backlog. And honestly, this movement started with actress Mariska Hargitay of Law & Order fame. And I know you know what you're going to hear next. In the criminal justice system, sexually based offenses are considered especially heinous. In New York City, the dedicated detectives who investigate these vicious felonies are members of an elite squad known as the Special Victims Unit. These are their stories. Hargitay figured out that the role she'd been playing on SVU gave her a platform to change how the system treats rape victims. She started the Joyful Heart Foundation, and that foundation is the home of End the Backlog. She's testified multiple times before Congress. Her foundation started raising a lot of money, so much that the federal government kind of took over. The foundation's effort became the seed money that eventually led the federal government to allocate and distribute more than $45 million to states. Even Montana, one of the smallest in population, got $2 million in a task force. They used it to figure out how to do a better job with rape evidence and also how to train cops to talk to victims. Hargitay is still involved with End the Backlog, she recently produced a documentary about all of this called I Am Evidence that aired on HBO. We had to bring justice to these victims. The rape kit backlog is the most shocking demonstration of how we regard these crimes. There were rapists who were not caught. And I can't understand what was so unimportant about me. What were you wearing that particular morning? What they see doesn't look like a real victim. Violence against women is a low priority. All of these kits should be tested. There are rape kits that haven't been processed across this nation. And those kits start getting results. Every day we get another 20 to 30 hits. Over 700 identified serial rapists. The goal is to get hundreds of thousands more test results into CODIS, the DNA database, and find those hits. But there's yet another problem, and it's one you're pretty familiar with. What happens when this newly tested evidence smacks up against the statute of limitation on the books at the time of the crime? That's actually what matters. That is a problem. Um, and it's not a problem that can be fixed. This is Camille Cooper. She's the vice president of public policy at RAIN, the Rape and Incest National Network. RAIN keeps the most up-to-date database on states' laws, and it's the leading voice on the statute of limitations issue. Cooper and her organization absolutely support testing more rape kits. Of course they do. But they've essentially washed their hands when it comes to cold cases hitting expired statutes. As Linda's case shows, there's just no recourse in the courts. 
Um, unfortunately, there are going to be cases that will never make it into the justice system. Um, and, and that's unfortunate, especially if you have a survivor who really feels like they need that as part of their healing and closure. You know, all I can say is that the, the way the U.S. is structured, the feds can't mandate the states to do anything. They can incentivize and disincentivize, but they can't m- mandate them because we live under a, uh, a state's rights framework um, under our U.S. Constitution. So I don't, I don't, I don't have a remedy for that, but um, I, I just would stress how important it is that we end this cycle of not allowing survivors to have access to justice by reforming all these laws and eliminating the statute of limitations in every single state. There's no clearinghouse of data on how big the problem is, how many older kits produce solid DNA evidence that's matched to people who then can't be prosecuted. I asked about it in Montana. I know that the initiative here led to testing 1,400 previously unsubmitted kits. The oldest were from 1995. But no one I asked, including former Attorney General Tim Fox or Megan Ashton, the CODIS administrator in Montana, two people you've heard from in earlier episodes, no one could pin down how many of those older kits here hit a problem with the statute of limitation. Camille Cooper of Rain says Ohio actually did the best accounting on this problem. When uh, Governor Mike DeWine was attorney general in Ohio, he did a phenomenal job of uh, auditing his backlog and getting all those kits tested. And, and there was a significant number, somewhere between 60 and 90 cases, that resulted in hits in CODIS that they were not able to prosecute because of that statute of limitations in Ohio. So I think that the, the longer we continue to... Um, test these older kits and find kits that are 20 years old sitting on evidence shelves, we're going to continue to have this problem where survivors are denied access to the justice that they deserve. So in just one state, you have somewhere between 60 and 90 Lindas, basically. I think the one thing that we forget about when we talk about things like the rape kit backlog is we forget that behind every kit is a survivor. And it's a survivor who's waiting to figure out who did this to me and am I safe? They spend every day losing sleep, not wondering if they're going to see this person turn the corner when they're walking down the street or see them at a grocery store. And and that level of continuous ongoing trauma and fear and anxiety takes a tremendous toll on the body and, and on uh, survivor's quality of life. And so if I could just say one thing, I just want everyone to remember that behind every kit, there's an actual survivor that's looking for peace and wants to feel safe. In 1987, eight-year-old Linda laid down in a hospital room in Billings and held her mom's hand and endured the exam. Every person attached to these kits endured it too. She and her mom didn't know, no one knew then, that the key to finding out who raped her was not in her rape kit. It was left behind in her bedroom. It would take 15 years to find it and test it. It would take another 16 years to realize that what they found, after every up and all the downs, that finding that DNA wouldn't actually matter for her. So I want to end this story where it started, with Linda. You know, I think that it shouldn't be this hard 
I think that when you have something as solid as DNA from my underwear when I was eight years old, like there's no other way that got there beyond him raping me. It shouldn't be this difficult. We know what happened. Everybody knows what happened. And, you know, what did, you might have told me this if this would have happened in Wyoming. It would have been pretty cut and dry. But it happened in Montana, and Montana has lots of statute of limitations on this. And if people like are more aware of that, maybe some things start to change. An Absurd Result has been a Mopac audio production. It was reported and written by me, Jewel Banville. Executive producers are Jonathan Nauzaradan and Jonathan Beal. Sound editing by Robert Williams. Music by Nick Bomarito. We had production help from Shannon McGarvey and Chris Moss. Special thanks to my family, Lee and our kids, who gave me the space and the support to do this. And thank you to you, the listeners. Your time means a lot to me, and it means a lot to Linda, too. The last time she and I talked with a microphone involved, she admitted that uh, she likes crime shows, too. Remember, I got really into, um, like, who was it, like Dateline ID or whatever? Like, just kind of like I'm still into, like, the crime podcast now. Like, I got really into a bunch of things like that. Um, I kind of process a lot through these crazy ass shows <laughs> that are like, you know, wife murderers, you know, things like that. I was, I just watched it all and I was really into it as, and knowing that it's like, that's not how all these real crime things actually work, you know, and knowing that they're throwing like this entire three year situation into a half hour drama, basically. Why do you think you're related to those shows? Because I feel like they're a show because it was this really weird, unusual situation that caught people's attention. And now I was kind of in the middle of one of those. And well, you know, they may not be making a show about me. Like there are other people out there dealing with this kind of stuff. Now I am making a show about you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Finally happened. <laughs> um. 34 years later. No. <laughs> That's it for real this time. Thanks again. For more, visit absurdresultpodcast.com and follow us on social media at absurdresultpod.